Well, it's a warm welcome, and I can tell you it's really warm in Johannesburg, where I'm coming to you from today. Tonight's program, we've got a little bit of fun for you. The 200th anniversary of a school from Utenhay called Muir College. I got the guys from Muir who were up in Johannesburg, came into the studio, told me all about an amazing school that they went to. Well, it has to be if it's lasted 200 years. And I think you're going to have a bit of fun listening to that a little later in the program. And we've got the inimitable Pit Fulion talking to Justin Rowe Roberts. Justin, uh, lots of fun in that discussion. Indeed, Alec. Um, Pete is very specific with the stocks that he has chosen and he goes into them in, in great depth. There's been a lot happening on the JSE and he covers it as Pete always does. He articulates his words very well and it's an interview worth listening to. He definitely is our most preeminent of the guys who focus on the stock market. Uh, Pete being an asset manager has been top of his game for many, many years, and uh, he's always a treat for us on a Thursday night. Also in tonight's program, our colleague Jared Neves, our motoring correspondent, has found out or tried to work out why the prices of cars are going up so much. So he's had a, a couple of heavyweight that he spoke to about this subject, Steve Keys, who's head of Bidvest Auto, and then Dirk van der Walt from We Buy Cars. That's really a pleasure to listen to. And then Walter Eilert features in a discussion with our colleague, Charles Boerter, who got hold of him a little earlier in the week. So there's lots coming up in the next hour. I hope you're not going to go anywhere, but let's kick off now with the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Sot, that's your cue for today's news headlines. Rich nations shouldn't force South Africa to ban new coal power projects and impose other conditions as a requirement for funding to help reduce its environmental footprint, the country's energy minister said. Gwede Mantashe last month skipped a meeting with climate envoys from the UK, US, Germany, France and the European Union, where an initial amount of almost $5 billion in concessional loans and grants was discussed. The envoys aim to reach an emissions reduction deal with South Africa that could be announced at the COP26 climate talks that begin in Glasgow later this month and serve as a model for other countries seeking to transition to green energy. They must not give us conditions. They are developed countries, Montasha said in an interview. We are a developing economy. They must talk to our program. And the South African steel workers will continue to strike after rejecting an increased wage offer from employers. An industry body raised its salary increase offer to 6% last week from 4.4%. Talks on Wednesday aimed at reaching an agreement failed, said Lucio Trentini, CEO of the Steel and Engineering Industries Federation of Southern Africa. Discussions are being held on Thursday on a way forward, he said. According to NUMSA Treasurer, NUMSA rejected the pay offer because it only came from one of the four industry associations that the Labour Union's members belong to. According to the Federation, the strike has cost the industry about 500 million rand in lost output, and the work stoppage has also resulted in the loss of about 100 million rand in wages. And three months on, Police Minister Becky Tele says that the South African police are close to cracking the insurrection plot, which the state claims was behind the mid-July riots and looting in KwaZulu-Natal and parts of Gauteng. 18 people have been arrested in connection with the alleged insurrection scheme, with the police minister saying their cases are all at different stages. The government argues that these individuals used their platforms and behind-the-scenes scheming to incite the masses to protest the arrest of former President Jacob Zuma. They call it sedition when you talk about uh, taking over the state, and my goodness, there was enough sedition going on and anarchy, 72 hours uh, it, you've got a wonderful video coming up from the conference on that, from the presentation of uh, Jason McCormick. How far in the making are you, Nadia, on that one? I am just par, like past halfway because it, it was so brilliantly prepared. I mean, in terms of video footage and uh, PowerPoint presentation, just to actually like, it, I mean, it takes you there. So I'm about halfway. 
but it's it's going to be worth the time because it's absolutely incredible. Well worth waiting for that, Jason McCormick, uh, on the presentation he gave to the Biz News Investment Conference. Well, let's find out about the markets now. Here's Justin. The JSE All Share Index was up at 66,800. The rand is stronger against all the major currencies to 14 rand 80 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 28 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 16 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,798 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 28,000 Rand. Brent crude is trading at a shade under $85 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 850,000 Rand. In the financial news, Long for Life CEO Brian Joffe, who built Bidvest into an industrial conglomerate, is set to switch roles to chair at the end of February, with the Lifestyle Focus Group announcing it has received an unsolicited expression of interest in all of its shares. Joffe is a well-respected entrepreneur who grew Bidvest from a bakery into an industrial conglomerate and Long for Life is a second investment holding company, owning brands including Sportsman's Warehouse, Outdoor Warehouse and the Sorbet franchise. The group announced on Thursday that Joffe will step down as CEO at the end of its 2022 financial year with Joffe taking over as chair from Graham Dempster who will become deputy. Investment group PSG, whose interests range from private education and agriculture to asset management, has opted to hold on to its dividend for its six months to end August, confident about the potential of its businesses, but warning it is too soon to talk about an economic recovery for South Africa. PSG's policy is to pay dividends ad hoc or when appropriate, and it reported on Thursday that some of the parts valuation rose 17% to 110 rand per share in the course of the six months to end August whilst its cash pile has grown 60% to 2.6 billion rand. A strong performance from financial services group PSG Consult resulted in a fair value gain of 1.8 billion for PSG's largest asset. Private school group Caro booked 500 million rand, while agriculture focus Zeta grew by 400 million rand. Justin, I've just got to double check this with you. Bitcoin, was it 850,000 rand? It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a mistake. 850,000 rand. It's it's just below $60,000 per Bitcoin. So it's zoomed in the past few weeks. I, it wasn't long ago we were talking about Bitcoin being at 450,000, 500,000 rand. My goodness. That's correct, Alec. And that just shows the speculative nature of this asset. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, October 14th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The UK's leveling up plan could come with a high cost for the country's pensioners. We'll look at startups in Latin America, which has now become a hot place for investors. And FT business columnist Helen Thomas has been looking into women-led startups and why they're still having a hard time getting funding. This isn't a problem that 24-year-olds with no experience are running into. This is a problem that women with serious business careers and serious kind of managerial experience are running into. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson promised in his last election campaign to spread economic prosperity by investing in poorer parts of the country. Now we have details on how his government will fund that. The FT reports that Chancellor Rishi Sunak is looking to tap into billions of pounds of pension fund cash to invest in long-term projects like infrastructure and clean energy. Officials are working on proposals to dilute the ceiling on annual management fees, rules that now protect tens of millions of UK retirement savers from high charges. Critics are concerned that retirees could be exposed to high or even more volatile fees. The UK government declined to comment for this story. Latin America is plagued by inefficiency and bureaucracy, which means if you're an entrepreneur, there's plenty of opportunity for disruptive solutions. And entrepreneurs are doing just that. This year, they've pulled in billions of dollars in venture capital. To find out more, I'm joined by the FT's Latin America editor, Michael Stott. Hey, Michael. Hello, Mark. 
So, Michael, how much investment has gone into tech startups in Latin America? Well, last year, four billion, just over four billion of venture capital flowed into the region, Mark, which was actually more than Southeast Asia. In the first half of this year, things really took off, and Latin America pulled in six and a half billion of venture capital, which is almost as much as India. Wow. Um, so, what kind of places are we talking about here? Can you list some of the specifics? Yeah, so the main focus are the big countries, Brazil, Mexico, to some extent, Colombia and Argentina. And and what we're seeing is money coming into more innovative Latin American tech companies, which are trying to tackle some of those problems you talked about, Mark, the bureaucracy, the difficulties of doing business, difficulties of daily life in Latin America. And for investors, from their perspective, why pivot away from Southeast Asia and toward Latin America instead? Well, partly because Latin America had lagged behind, Mark. So the region had been quite slow to take off in tech terms. And so the opportunities uh, are much bigger. And what happened in the pandemic was the pandemic hit Latin America extremely hard, harder than almost any other region in the world. But what it also did was it pushed people online much faster than had been the case before. So, for example, the fintechs, uh, the new banks that were being set up, they found that they grew exponentially. This is a region with a, a large number of people who don't have a bank account. And those new fintech banks targeted them and they found they could acquire customers incredibly fast. And the, the best example of that is probably New Bank, which is a Brazilian bank that was started in 2013. And it now has more customers than any other standalone digital bank in the world, 40 million customers. Are there other examples that come to mind for you that aren't bank related? Yeah, so there's a, a used car venture in Mexico, Kazak, which is a very interesting one, trying to solve the problem that in Mexico, people are concerned about, are they going to buy a stolen car? Are they buying a car with dodgy papers? Are they going to go and buy a car somewhere where they're going to get mugged? So Kazak is trying to simplify all that by buying the car for you, checking all the paperwork, offering a guarantee, delivering it to your home, valeted, ready. So that's one example. Another one is Rappi, which is a Colombian delivery company that's now trying to become a sort of type of super app, delivering everything from cash to fresh groceries. And they've got a thing called Rappi Turbo Fresh. That means that if there are 200 most sold items, you can request and they arrive within 10 minutes. Michael Stott is the FT's Latin America editor. Thanks as always, Michael. Thank you, Mark. And speaking of startups, let me tell you a story about an entrepreneur who wanted financing for a better designed breast pump. It's a pretty short story because her idea was dismissed as too niche. It's actually incredibly hard to understand why the old generation or the standard generation of breast pumps are pretty hopeless unless you've had to use one. So I would not have had a good appreciation of that before I had children. That's the FT's business columnist, Helen Thomas. She says the problem is that the vast majority of people making decisions about what ideas to fund have never had to breastfeed. One study shows that in the UK, about 13% of investment professionals are women, and in the US, it's about 12. I think in some ways it's even sort of worse than that because the women that are in these sectors, you know, can be quite concentrated in, in certain firms. So certainly in the UK, say more than 80% of firms had no women on their investment committees at all. So Helen, did the pandemic have any effect on the number of women entrepreneurs able to get funding for their business ideas? Well, uh, it was, it dropped is the short answer. The data suggests that female founders share of funding in 2020 dropped towards 2%. I think the figures in the UK actually, you know, bounce along around 1%. So it's even lower. And it's worth noting, actually, that the, the government in the UK had this funding scheme that put money into startups and high growth companies to try and avoid a sort of generation of companies failing. Only about 1% of that went to female founded businesses as well. So it, it dropped from a low base to even lower. And I think, you know, that reflected some of the gendered effects of the pandemic. And the theory is that because children were off school, because people were working from home, because there were obligations and demands on women, potential female entrepreneurs, female pitchers, you know, didn't get off the ground. So there may be a sort of gendered effect of the pandemic there. OK, so pandemic aside, or uh, maybe now that the pandemic has made this more urgent, what ideas are there to get more women-led startups funded? I think longer term, you get more women in the venture capital industry full stop. 
I think in the short term, there's an appreciation from people like Debbie Wasco, um, who I spoke to, who founded a, an all-female club, an entrepreneurship platform and fund, that the industry is starting to develop platforms and mechanisms and support to specifically um, encourage female entrepreneurship. I also spoke to January Ventures, which is another interesting outfit. They um, have basically decided that you know, venture capital is a network business. It's very much sort of based around who you know. Uh, and they see that as a very entrenched business that's only going to change very, very slowly. And so January Ventures, they're really trying to rethink how you pitch. They're trying to make it much less dependent on introductions and pitch decks, you know, much more equality of access to the process. And they're actually looking at diversity far more broadly because everything we're talking about around gender diversity also applies to other types of diversity. A, a January Ventures stat is that their research says that for every $1 men raise at the early stage, women raise an average of 37 cents and black women raise an average of two cents. That's the FT's business columnist, Helen Thomas. Before we go, inflation is hitting one of China's most basic cooking ingredients. The country's biggest soy sauce maker, Faishan Haitian, says its retail prices will go up 7%, and it's doing this to make the business more sustainable. Raw material costs are rising, Chinese coal prices are at a record high, and the autumn harvest season for crops like soy has been disrupted by power outages. More price increases are expected, and companies may have to absorb the higher costs instead of passing them on to the consumer. That's because Beijing historically caps prices when they get too high. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Investment Insights is Pitful Yun. Lots happening on the local bars. Let's start with Avenge, which is a company included in your bundle of twigs. They're doing a 500 to 1 share consolidation, which is a type of corporate action that isn't too common. Could you explain the thesis behind it and the possible benefits for shareholders? Well, I think the benefit boils down to um, getting a more realistic or more accurate valuation for the business. At the moment, it's trading five cents, four cents, six cents, and there's I think there are fifty billion shares in issue, if I'm not mistaken. So they just want to reduce the number of shares outstanding and increase the price of it per share. The overall value of the company stays exactly the same. But you'll get a more accurate pricing because at the moment, um, you know, the difference between a market cap of at five cents and six cents is 20 percent. You know, so the market is uh, because of the pricing is changing the value of the business by 20 percent each time it trades between five and six cents, which isn't realistic. I mean, uh, no business changes, uh, no business value changes by 20 percent in a short space of time. So it'll just lead to more realistic pricing of the business uh, valuation of the business uh, by the market. PSG out with interim results. Share price has rallied over the last few months as the listed constituents in the fund have increased. The stock is still trading around a consistent 30% discount to its sum of the parts or net asset value. Are investment holding companies at these large discounts something that you find attractive or would you rather hold the underlying assets granted they're listed? No, I, I, I think investment holding companies are at the moment a very attractive investment opportunity for investors. Um, you know, the discounts are quite large. PSG is probably one of the ones with a smaller discount. I mean, companies like Raynet, the Rembrandt are trading well in excess of 30-40% discounts. And some of the smaller companies are also trading at even bigger discounts uh, to NAB. Uh, so I think those are attractive opportunities, um, especially where they hold mainly unlisted business, which you don't otherwise get access to. Uh, that in even increases attractiveness more. Uh, and uh, what's uh, what's also good for a company like PSG and some others is where they have a good track record of creating value over time, which you can access at a discount. So I'd rather access that uh, ability to create value at a discount than buy the underlyings at full price. On the topic of investment holding companies, Long for Life also released results today. Before we get into that, CEO Brian Joffe is stepping down into a chairman role. At 74, he's probably nearing the end of his career. Were Joffe-led businesses something that you liked investing in and general remarks on him as a corporate leader? Yes, I think uh, 
Brian Joffe is one of the corporate leaders in South Africa that, that has created a tremendous amount of value for shareholders, um, head and shoulders above many, many others. Um, you know, the old days of Bidvest created tremendous value. Um, and along for life, he's busy building it up again. I, th- I think, um, unfortunately, I, I, for some of his assets, he seems to have overpaid a bit. So it's taking more time for that value to come through. Um, but I, you know, these days also 70 is a new 50. And I don't think 74, uh, you need to retire at the age of 74 to start taking it easy. I mean, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett are 90 and 100 years old and they're still going. Um, so I don't think you need to take your foot off the gas when you're 74. And he's taking on a chairman role, which is still, you'll still be involved in the business very actively. Um, so age is just a number. I, I don't think one has to worry about that too much. Uh, and I think Brian Joffe, um is one of the value creators in the economy, and I think it's worth following him. And if you can acquire the shares at the right price, I think it, it uh, probably would make a good investment. Pete, that makes me a little bit worried. You're insinuating I've got 50 years in me in corporate, which at, is going to be tough. At least 50, and by the time you turn 70, um, you know, it's probably even more. <laughs> uh, staying on the topic of long for life, their shares are up 16% on the news that there's been a buyout offer for the company. It does seem like an endless issue for investment holding companies having to search for corporate action to unlock value for shareholders. Do you think there's a space for these holding structures going forward? And what are the benefits if these discounts persist? Look, the, you know, if you buy an investment holding company at a, let's call it a 30% discount, and the net asset value continues to grow at a reasonably high rate, you will share that growth. Even if the net asset value discount stays at 30%, you will share that growth. Uh, so, so why would you ever consider buying an investment holding company? Number one, because the track record of the managers, the people who manage this holding company is good um, and because you trust them. I think that's, that's key. The second reason you would consider buying into an investment holding company is if that investment holding company gives you access to assets which you, otherwise, which you find attractive and otherwise might not be able to get access to. Uh, that's, that's another reason. So... Um, and then one has to look at tax jurisdictions and those sort of things. Some of the investment loan companies have favorable tax situations, which also adds value to shareholders. So there are attractions to these companies. Um, and the past, you know, these things go through cycles. When people are negative, investors are negative, they tend to trade at big discounts. But it's not that long ago that Bright, for instance, was trading at a huge premium to NAD. Uh, and PSG was trading a huge premium to NAD and so on and so forth. So. Uh, it's not a rule that they trade at discount. It's just more a reflection of the market mood rather than anything else. And right now, the market mood in South Africa tends to be quite negative. Um, uh, most investors don't want to invest here. They want to take their money offshore. Uh, so there's very little buying power. And that's why investment holding companies trade at discount. And that's why some of the, many of the small caps traded massive discounts to the intrinsic value. Uh, that's just a reflection of the mood of the market. David Shapiro tweeted earlier this morning that in the last four days, Huliban has run from 2 Rand 25 to 3 Rand 19, a gain of 42%. This morning, they come out with a cautionary announcement and the share goes up another 21%. He calls it, is there no shame in our industry? <laughs> Pete, what's your take on insider trading on the JSE? Is it a big problem or is it not? I don't know if there is insider trading or there has been insider trading in Huliban or not. I, I don't know of that. All I do know is when a company is in talks to be acquired or to make an acquisition or to do some sort of transaction, there are many, many advisors and, and intermediaries involved. And, you know, they might mention something to somebody else who might, you know, and, and somebody trades on that information. Um, and, you know, it, that happens. It, it has always happened. It's not a new thing. It's not a thing that only happens in Africa. It happens everywhere in the world. You can look at when there's corporate action shares, the share price starts moving before the action is announced. It happens everywhere. It's just how, and that's the function of the market is to disseminate information into the market and uh, and the prices start reflecting the new information as they receive the market. And there's the saying, the market is smart. The market is smart because people know stuff. And, you know, you can come with all sorts of rules and regulations and whatever, it's not going to change human nature and it's not going to change how things get done. The fact of the matter is Huliman, up to quite recently, was trading at around a 60% discount to net current asset value. In other words, 
ignoring all their long-term assets, all their machinery and factories and plant, ignoring all those assets, just their current assets, in other words, working capital, cash, and so on, just take the current assets, you deduct all the liabilities, long-term and short-term debt, all their pension fund liabilities, in uh, lease liabilities, you deduct all the liabilities from their working capital. The market value was 60% of that number. It was dirt, dirt, dirt cheap. So, you know, when do you buy it? Do you buy it when the rumors come out or do you buy it and sit and wait? And, and my style has always been to buy these dirt cheap businesses and sit and wait. Um, you know, uh, we bought Uleman at the price of two rand. I didn't know uh, about six months ago. I didn't know whether it would be corporate action or not. Um, but uh, one waits. And now in six months, it's almost doubled. And that's a good return. Um, you know, and I think it's worth more than even the current share price. Turning to a global perspective, one of the major concerns in markets at the moment is inflation. How does one safeguard their portfolio for, for permanently high inflation as this transitory narrative seems to have blown over somewhat? It does look like inflation is becoming more embedded. We'll see. Um, I think a lot of what's causing inflation right now is going to wash out over the next six months. But I think there are longer term effects at play in terms of um, uh, the, power, the negotiating power of labor versus capital. I think it's shifting in favor of labor. So I think you'll see wage rates increasing globally uh, at, a, at quite a high rate. Uh, cost of housing is, is going to go up. Uh, but the supply chain things and so on will probably fall by the wayside over time. But I, I do think it's becoming more accepted that inflation will be higher for longer. How do you protect yourself against that? I think you own businesses um, that have uh, shorter duration assets. In other words, where the cash flows are right here up front and not 20 years out. You buy short duration assets. Um, you buy assets that have very high margins so that when the costs go up uh, and the revenue goes up, um, the margin isn't affected. Um, so those are sort of companies one would look at, uh, high margin businesses. And finally, hard assets, assets that, um, that uh, reflect inflation, uh, stuff like gold, Bitcoin, those sort of assets uh, is something one could consider um, to protect yourself in inflationary times. And energy assets, the other great inflation protector is uh, oil and gas type assets. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Muir College, which is in Utenhague, is celebrating its 200th anniversary. In studio with me today are Andrew Binning and Asanda Singato. Old Murats, I guess you'd call yourselves, Andrew. Yes, uh, Old Murats is the correct term. Is it a big deal for you guys, Asanda, 200 years? It- wow, it's such a special occasion. It's once in a lifetime. And uh, we are really prepping for the events that are going to take place next year. And we, we're looking forward for all the different murats to come through and support the event. Andrew, you're the chairman of the committee. How did you get pulled into, into that role? Alec, I'm still asking myself that same question, but um, no, look, very proud. I am the president of the Old Murat Union, which in itself is 101 years old as a an old boys association, probably because of my business is um, marketing and corporate communication. So people think I'd be well suited to the position. I said no for a number of years. And then about three, four years ago, I, I thought perhaps the timing is, is now right. Um, some old boys convinced me and said, come on, 200 years is coming up now. Let's Let's make a big effort to put the school on the map so to speak. Our current database is about just under 4,000 old boys who are still alive, uh, and that's every corner of the globe. If it started 200 years ago, Asanda, for many of those years, it was an all-white school. Yes, uh, it has. And uh, the school started transforming around 1990, where the school accepted the first black oak, and who is now an advocate, I think, at the NPA. And today, probably 70% black students and the rest is a 
mixture of white colors, Indians. Yeah, it's quite a diverse school. And when you were there? When I was there, yeah, it was pretty much diverse. I matriculated in 99. Now with us, uh, all classes were, were mixed. And uh, even with sports, um, I played first team rugby. I had uh, a white, um, white team players as well. And uh, it's pretty diverse. And uh, it's actually in very excellent school. Yeah, thanks. Has it given you an advantage, do you think? Yes, it has. Um, just in terms of um, understanding how the world works and understanding the different cultures. And remember, we learned those at a pretty young age um, when I was at Muir. So you played first team rugby. Andrew, you tall enough to have been a lock? <laughs> I stayed away from rugby as long as possible. Only uh, my matric year, we had quite a good first team. And, and so, they, so all the boys were encouraged to play rugby. And uh, I made it to the ninth team. I don't think the school has so many teams at this stage, but uh, I was I was a fullback for the ninth team. So that was my claim to fame. But no, I was involved in tennis and cricket. Um, of course, the school is very different today as it was when I was um, at school compared to when Asanda was. But I think we, you know, even now, knowing the headmaster, knowing the staff, I think the focus is more on on a good education, on a good all-round experience, sport, um, culture. The school's got a very good choir, which is a, a new addition in the last couple of years. So, so even though the world talks a lot about race, I think the focus is more on tradition, on good education, um, no matter what background you come from. What kind of boy comes out of an all-boys school that's been around for 200 years? Uh, I think a sense of pride. I think a sense that you've been through a, a school with, with traditions. Um, Muir College is quite a small school compared to a lot of the other traditional boys' schools in the country. Um, so you're always the underdog. Yeah, you almost feel like you're always playing against the All Blacks. Um, you, you almost explain that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think you, you, you know, on the sports field, definitely. Um, academics, not so much so. I think the how school, many boys are at the school? Probably about six hundred in total. And Gray High School in pretty close to a thousand. Oh, they're the big so, rival. They would be uh, Gray Graham College from Grahamstown in Newtonegg is a school Brunfach, which is a big rival, local rival. Um, and then you get Selborne Dale College, um, schools like that in the Eastern Cape. But so you're always like you're the underdog, but I think proud to have gone to a school where you give your best. So the school motto, for example, is um, second to none, nec pluribus impar. And it doesn't mean that you always must win. It must mean that you give the, the, of, of your best. And if you give of your best uh, with anything, that's all you can do. And do you guys contribute still? Do you do you find, support the school financially? Oh, yes. A uh, number of murats uh, do uh, support the school, but we're trying to get the number up. And especially now that we've got the 200th year celebration coming up, uh, we are inviting more old boys just to, to assist the school in terms of the finance and get the funding going. So what have you got, uh, Andrew, on the, on the plate for 200th anniversary? I'm sure there are a few other schools around the country who wondering how one celebrates uh, this milestone when they finally get there. Before I answer that question, Eric, I just want to, say that um, Asanda has been quite modest. About three years ago, I came to a get-together, which he arranged in Midrand, and there were about 80 old boys, old Murats. And um, just to show you the kind of passion, so halfway through the night, maybe it was a couple of the beers we were talking, but I don't think entirely. Um, the restaurant was packed that we had this function in. Uh, the guy said, let's all stand up and sing the school song. Now, in many contexts, and many people would say, that's embarrassing, keep quiet, let's not do, let's not... But I think Asanda's got quite a, quite a following here in Gauteng, you know. So those 70, 80 guys stood up in the middle of the restaurant um, and sang the school song to raucous applause afterwards from, um, from all those who were at the Dross restaurant. So um, there's a lot of pride and, um, and, and will to, to connect with each other. So what's on the program for so, <coughs> the next, uh, well, for the celebrations? So we obviously have to take COVID into regard. We, we're taking it sort of quarter by quarter for now. The, the founders week is planned for the first week of August, 2022. And, and that's our big uh, focus where we uh, are wanting to raise the profile of the school and um, talk about how the school has, has come towards education in South Africa. But of course, we've got some key events. We've got um, a gala dinner for a thousand old boys and VIPs with hopefully social distancing as well. We have an international rugby festival where we've invited six top uh, schools in South Africa to play against six teams from overseas. What schools? Um, the schools that have been invited that have so far accepted, uh, Paul Boys High School, um, Gray College, Gray High School, Selborne, 
and Brandfach in Newton And you're bringing in international teams. One example is an old boy who coaches the top rugby club in the USA in South Carolina. So he's bringing that team across. And uh, we're utilizing our reps in England, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand. And an old boy who recently played his first match for Japan as a Japanese um, national, Shane Gates. So I'm um, looking at a variety of teams taking part. We've signed a contract with um, Supersport. We're going to broadcast those games live and live stream under 13 tournaments. So lots happening around the rugby school assembly, lots of pomp and ceremony, uh, functions for teachers, um, a Remembrance Day service. Oh, there's, there's lots. We, we're trying to also do a Guinness World Record attempt of the most number of people doing a school war cry. So um, we're hoping for about two and a half, three thousand people just to get into the Guinness records and have a bit of a, an activity around that. You know? How was it started? You go back 200 years, it's almost, it's almost frightening to think what life must have been like in that, in that period. We, we need our historian. We've got a guy, Charles van Rennen, who's our professional historian, who's got all the background, but the, 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 the story is that um, about eight or ten educators from Scotland came out, landed in Cape Town, and were then sent to various parts of the Cape Colony. And uh, believe it or not, it's interesting because Utenaig is about 40 k's outside of Port Elizabeth. Same metro now, Nelson Mandela Bay Municipality, metro. But apparently in, the, in those days, Utenaig area was more affluent, more things worked better. So people were, were kind of staying in the Utenaig area, and this guy um, – uh, Rose Innes was sent to Utenaig to start a school and, and started Muir College. Uh, then in 18, well, it was, actually wasn't called Muir College. It was called something else and eventually developed into Muir College as uh, being the same school. And then in 1829 was recalled back to Cape Town to start SACS and UCT. And the name Muir? The school um, changed names two or three times. And I think in the 1860s, um, the superintendent of the Cape Colony was a Sir Thomas Muir. And the school, for some reason, decided to take on his name. Um, I think he was quite an influential person and did well for the school. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's the Scottish heritage uh, of, of Muir College. So interesting that I, I went to a prep school, which was also started by Scots, although two Scottish ladies, Merkiston in, uh, in Peter Maritzburg. Uh, it, it's, it's an interesting impact that these, that the Scots had. And you wonder why would it be the Scottish? But uh, just to, to take it a little bit further into, the next hundred years, uh, how are you likely to see a school like this changing? It's very difficult to tell, you know, and I, I, I suppose the school is keen to move with the times. That's why it was one of the first schools to, to admit black individuals, black boys into the school. The school wants to maintain its traditions, yet it's also open to new traditions. So one of the legacy projects um, you'll be interested to hear about is a leadership academy. And that's come from a lot of old boys who have, advised that there's a, a, a lack of leadership generally in South Africa at the moment. So so one of those legacy projects is actually to start a leadership academy that provides opportunity for young boys in primary school already and high school to develop leadership skills. And and our desire is in that Muir College becomes just like maybe Grey Bloom is for rugby. We would like to say in South Africa, if if parents see qualities in their young boys, uh, maybe even to Af into Africa eventually, to say send their children to Muir, and it could be present or it could be online, is, is still being being considered. So that's the kind of space we want to play in, is that leadership opportunity and leadership uh, training from, from a young age. I'm Jared Neves for Biz News. A shortage of semiconductor chips as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic has seen a global surge in used and new car prices. I spoke to two leaders in the industry, Bedvest Automotive CEO Steve Keys and We Buy Cars co-founder Dirk van der Valt to gain their insights. Take a listen. We've seen that prices have soared internationally. Uh, do you think local car prices have been affected by the semiconductor crisis? Uh, absolutely. We are starting to see quite a, uh, quite a push on pricing, um, on new vehicle pricing as the quarter has just ended. So we're starting to get notification from various OEMs of price increases. I must stress, however, that these price increases are not only attributable to the semiconductor shortage. We've seen a surge in, in international shipping costs. There have been shortages of other raw materials such as steel, plastic, 
uh, electrical harnesses and, and the like. So it's not all attributable to semiconductors, but the semiconductor crisis obviously has played a significant role. Do you think that once everything's settled down that these high prices will remain? Look, there's likely to be a sustained level of pricing for some time. But as specifically logistics costs start normalizing, I think there will be scope for uh, – very, there are very few instances where prices will drop, but they will probably remain stable for a longer period of time. I know South Africa receives a lot of its cars from India and countries, Korea, for example. Do you know which countries have been worst affected by this? I know China was pretty pretty badly impacted. Most of the countries in the Far East, where quite a lot of componentry is made, was impacted because of uh, specifically COVID and uh, factories having to, to shut. Probably the most impacted was India where a lot of the cheaper cars emanate from, but pretty much it's a global, it's a global situation. Everybody's been impacted. And, um, you know, even, even in the U.S., there are a number of motor manufacturers, who, uh, U.S.-based motor manufacturers who have, uh, have complained about the impact of the shortages of semiconductors and have had to go into either closing factories or work, working short time. I've heard a lot of stories about people wanting to buy a new car and they, they're told basically it's a year waiting list, for example. Have you heard any stories or have you got any examples of clients coming in looking for new cars now willing to shop for used or pre-owned vehicles? Yeah, there's very, very definitely a, um, when the need for transport is urgent, people will migrate from new to used. However, there's also been a, an, an issue with the supply of used vehicles because you will recall that when, when the pandemic hit um, late March last year, travel was, you know, really decimated, uh, as a consequence and car rental companies who take up about 18% of new vehicle volumes on an annual basis in a normalized system. They were first forced to defleet rapidly and bring their, the levels of their fleet down. So, you know, big companies basically halved the, the size of their fleets. And for the last 18 months, car rental has not been refleeting. As a consequence, the supply of those vehicles, because those vehicles are sold after around 12 months, they're sold into the retail um, network. We've kind of missed a season. If I, if I can put it like that. So not only have, have fleece sizes in the car rental, rental industry, which is a feeder to retail, not only have the, those halved, but then also there hasn't been a refleet. As a consequence, there's quite a shortage of used vehicles and, and hence they, the used vehicles are holding value much more than they would have done historically where there was more supply. There is quite a shortage of used vehicle stock and, and we are having to pay um, significantly more for that stock to keep our used vehicle showrooms full. So how much longer do you think this is going to go on for? It's quite an interesting question because, you know, you get quite a divergent set of views. I mean, many of the OEMs believe that the situation should normalize in the second half of next year. Uh, some, uh, including Daimler, have, um, has sort of hinted at this being pervasive until 2023. So it's, it's not really apparent right now when, when the situation will normalize, but it's certainly not going to normalize in the next three months or so. It's, it, it's going to endure into the better part of next year. I've seen that a number of premium car makers have said that this limited amount of vehicles uh, for customers has actually proven quite profitable for them in the sense that customers are really wanting these high-end luxury cars, but there's not enough supply, meaning that they are essentially able to sell these cars at high prices. Even now with COVID and the semiconductor crisis, is there still a strong demand for more expensive vehicles? Look, the premium segment of the market has been under uh, pressure for uh, for a couple of years now, even pre-pandemic. Volumes have, have dropped in the premium uh, segment. Uh, however, the the demand for premium premium vehicles is still pretty strong. It's it's nowhere near at the levels it was four four years ago. 
However, people are prepared. I mean, it, it, it's not that the, the, the OEMs are necessarily increasing their pricing and increasing their margins. It's just when vehicle supply exceeds demand, higher levels of discounting happen in, a, in the market. Those discounts have shrunk in the last while pretty much throughout the industry in that there isn't pressure to distress sell uh, inventory. As a company that runs a number of dealer networks, are there any measures that a company like yours can put in place to ensure that if something like this happens again, there isn't as severe an effect? There are uh, strategies uh, that that you can put in place. I think the, the, the most important strategic decision that, that, that needs to be taken is, is that you cannot be reliant, too reliant on any one department. I mean, a motor dealership is comprised out of a number of departments, new vehicle sales, used vehicle sales, parts, service, finance and insurance. And, and, and you need to, to balance the business, uh, getting a, a, a solid contribution out of each of the component parts of the dealership uh, in order that if one one uh, supply chain collapses, that your business is, is, is bulletproof. That was Steve Keyes, CEO of Bidvest Automotive. Now take a listen to Dirk van der Valt, co-founder of We Buy Cars. Have you seen that local car prices have been affected by the semiconductor crisis? Certainly, absolutely. My my neighbor is one of the executives at uh, one of the major uh, EMOs. He also shared with us, you know, that they are in a crisis. Uh, not, not a crisis, that's the wrong word to choose. But they, they, they are really having problems obtaining new stock from the uh, o- o- OMEs. Nationally, that's a problem to them. It's in pockets and in specific models and more with specific brands than with others, like BMW and Mercedes would uh, have more of a problem for the simple reason that the luxury models require more chips in their cars. People may not realize that a normal car today, it's not like it's got three or four. It's more like in 40 to 120, depending on whether it's a 1600 Corolla or a 600 Merc. But this whole thing that's happening also has very positive consequences in, in, in that it sort of revives the uh, second-hand market. For us, the, sh- the, the chip shortage is obviously a boon. It's, it's good for us because we are in the second-hand motor train. We are sitting with all the chips that are in the existing cars that can make windows go up and down and uh, indicator lights. To, uh, what I'm saying is, if you, you want to buy a, a Toyota Bucky now, you're going to wait. So many people, they, they, different situa- they need a vehicle now or yesterday. So they have to make a plan and buy a second-hand vehicle. And those very same franchise dealers and multi-franchise dealers, they know that. So they have to get stock. If they can't get new stock, then they have to make a plan and get something else for their client and so obviously we buy cars is extremely well positioned to provide that need and to to help out there and as a result the, the prices of stock has has increased but it's limited to very specific needs of franchise dealers that would be very young stock very low mileage and on those specific vehicles they are prepared to pay a premium because of the competition to uh, obtain that stock. In terms of dealerships knocking on your door, uh, looking for stock that they could perhaps put in their dealerships, have you seen an uptick in that? Absolutely, yes, we have seen an uptick. It is to a great extent also as a result of the chip shortage. Uh, We Buy Cars have been doing the auctions, the daily auctions that's going on permanently on, on, on our website, and we've got more and more and more dealers signing up for to participate on our auctions at the end of the day you see buckies on the road like you see all sorts of brands that you would not normally see so there's certain brands that's all of a sudden now becoming more 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 visible on the road because the people just simply can't buy the normal brands that they would normally have bought they are settling for something else and 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 and, and the whole change that's happening it's I think all in all it's positive because it, it, it brings a bit of life and a fresh air uh, to, to those specific franchises and people can see that, you know, South Africans like to get very loyal to a specific brand and then they badmouth the other brand without having really practical experience of that brand. And then people will 
try and they ask their friends, so what's the best bucky that I should buy? Certainly you must buy a Toyota Hilux. That's the best bucky. But the, the, the good, honest truth is that vehicles these days are so good in general that the differences in quality between different vehicles is almost, I would say, marginal. So if you buy an Isuzu instead of a Toyota or a Nissan or whatever, I think there's a marginal, marginal difference in quality in general. On today's show, I talk to Walter Eilert, founding fund manager of Eilert Fund Managers, about Renette. Welcome, Walter. Hello. Can you give us a brief overview of Renette? I believe it's in your Prescient Fund, the Eilert Prescient Fund. Yeah, so um, it's our biggest holding across all our funds. It's basically an investment trust uh, that Johan Rupert started a few years back, quite a while back. It came about as, if you recall, Richmond and Remgra used to have British-American tobacco shares. And I think Remgro and uh, Richmond didn't feel it was appropriate for them to own the, that share. And it was spun out into Raynet. And effectively, it was a pure play on bat at the time. And, and it was, as Johan used to call it, uh, there was one should always have a get rich fund and a stay rich fund, and I think stay rich was was the way Ven, uh, Renette was seen and was named after Graf Renette, I think, where his family originated. And and then we had the GFC crisis that came about, and if you if you think about, it, there was a lot of opportunities uh, around, and he started investing with people that he trusted in these distressed assets, if you can call it that. One of those assets was Pension Fund Corp, which, if you recall, in the old days when you worked for a company, when you left or resigned from the, when you retired from the company, you were paid a pension based on your levels of service, and and there was a guarantee implicit from the company that they would pay your pension until you died, and then went on to your spouse, and from your spouse it came to an end. That was called a defined benefit fund, and then over the years particularly in South Africa, our companies converted to a defined contribution fund, which meant that the member or the employee took the risk uh, and the liabilities of the fund. And therefore, you had more say in who and where your assets would be. But many of these legacy companies, particularly in the UK, had these defined benefit schemes. So think of British Telecom or BAT, huge workforces which have these promises from these companies which put these companies under huge strain. So in rising markets, it was fine. They enjoyed pension fund holidays. You know, the company didn't have to contribute to the fund. But over time, when markets went the other way, these funds were going into deficits and have become a problem or a big liability for these companies. So they have looked to someone to take those liabilities away from them. And Pension Fund Corp was started out of this GFC crisis to buy pension fund liabilities from pension funds and to make sure that they're not exposed to, uh, to, to too much risk they would match the liability with bonds and therefore the income stream would match the promise or commitment to the pension fund member so the risk is to you as a person who guarantees liabilities is inflation mortality and credit risk in the instrument that you're using to guarantee this liability but because you are restricted with triple a or very high investment grade bonds the risk of the bond going bust is low as we've seen the last 12 years as well as the the inflation has been uh, capped at a certain level and therefore there's no risk in inflation and mortality you reinsure so it's just a matter of scaling up this processing business pricing the service or the benefit that you're going to give and not and having the ability to walk away if the price is wrong. It, I don't think, and it's quite a complex business, but in simple terms, I don't think it's as risky as an insurer that gives a promise to pay for a certain event if it occurs, and there could be a long tail to the business. It's a fairly well-defined risk. In other words, how long you're going to live and what your expectations are. And if you can get a perfect match, your risk is low. And then your benefit comes in that your costs don't go up as much as 
the size of your AUM and it's in a massive market. So we like that business and over the years Pension Fund Corp has grown quite a lot and Renet has moved away from being a BAT player and investing in these distressed assets through other fund managers and companies to really becoming three types of assets. It's stake in Pension Fund Corp, which is roughly 50% of the net asset value. It's an unlisted company, so it's hard to value sometimes. And in the, in the Rupert way of doing things, I suspect it's conservatively valued. We know it is. Secondly, there's BAT, which they've been selling and buying back their own shares with the BAT proceeds, so they're not really reducing the exposure all the time. It's a very clever way of keeping your exposure. Unfortunately, when COVID came along, the buyback was suspended. We hope that the management will reintroduce the buyback. And when that happened, we saw the discount started closing. And the third thing is roughly 20% in these distressed fund managers and commitments that they made from property to China to everything, where they're busy liquidating those investments. So I suspect in time to come, this company will be only pension fund corp and the rest would have been sold off over the next 10 20 years and the discount will close so the question is why is there this discount you know it's 40 percent if you just do the sum of the parts well first of all many companies that are investment holding companies trade at huge discounts be it a holding company in hong kong by lika shing he's at a big uh, hutchinson Wenpo is at a big discount if you look at uh, a company called, which was the old Pargesa, a French holding company, all over the world, Lowe's, they traded big discounts. And fund managers at the moment prefer to buy momentum tech stocks. This is too boring for them. The second thing is there's this performance fee calc, which has a high watermark that Mr. Rupert's management company takes. And, and the market says that's not fair, and it puts a discount on it. And, and I don't think that's an unfair assumption. But the point is, we make a lot of money if we pay them a performance fee. And we don't think 40% is warranted, maybe 20% is warranted. And when we do our own valuation on Pension Fund Corp, we think it's well, it's north of 50% the discount. So we think it's a safe play. It's, it's listed in South Africa, so it doesn't get the attention of global fund managers. Even though it's listed in, uh, on Luxembourg and Amsterdam, the liquidity is very poor. And it's very hard to get to the management team because of COVID. And while the CEO is very open to discussions with shareholders, I think trying to get the, the major shareholder, which is the Rupert family and the market, to think the same way has always been a, a problem. And uh, we have found them very cooperative, very, very encouraging. So we haven't experienced what the market has experienced. And we're quite patient. We'll wait 10 years. You know, and you know, I, I've made it. My family's made a lot of money out of Remgrow and Richmond over 20 years, 30 years, and I think it's the same thing with Rennet. What do you think is the major risk to this business? I think the major risk is that, uh, first of all, Pension Fund Corp has a risk that we don't know about. In other words, is that there is a, 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 a liability that hasn't been mentioned. We don't think that's the, the case because the British authorities are very, very tough on pension fund compliance. So maybe they buy an asset that they're going to use as, as guarantee to meet liabilities, cannot pay out. But the biggest asset is not more than 2% of the total portfolio. And I mean, one thing is very clear to me is the ECB and the Fed and the Bank of England are not going to let any serious bond go bust. They just keep on buying bonds. So that can change. And maybe the management team perhaps stick their neck out a bit too much. But I mean, the board is very much on it. And they, they effectively are run by the Rupert group of, of management. In other words, people like Dili Malerba and, and I can't remember the CEO who came from Metropolitan who actually runs Renet. They're, they're on it and they're insurance people. So it's not like it'll become a very liberal-minded pension fund. You know, a, a insurance company. And then BAT, BAT could disappear as a company before they could sell the shares. Of, I don't think that's going to happen. They're not, it, the discount is more than enough to take care of any unknown thing. What is the runway for defined benefit schemes? Because it seems to me we're changing to defined contribution. Is, is that the same in the UK? How many years um, is left on that? 
Oh, it's many years, many, many years. It's massive. You must, they only got about 7% of the market at the moment. So, the, the, you know, we comp South Africa was well ahead in, in the 80s really, as it started moving towards the DC funds. So I think in, 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 in the UK, it's going to take many, many years for... I mean, why should you as a pension fund member? The only time you're going to let the company off the hook is because is you're scared they're going to go bust. Well, thanks for being with us tonight and indeed through this whole week from our team, uh, myself, Alec Hogg, my colleagues, Nadia Swat, uh, Dudu Masuku, who's our sound engineer, Justin Rowe Roberts and Jared Neves. We look forward to being back into in your company on Monday. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.